0: mm <laughs> All right, for those of you that have watched this show, that's a first. My microphone got unplugged. Of course, I'm Mike Jeffers, Chicago Jazz Magazine, ChicagoJazz.com, and welcome to Chicago Music Revealed, episode 82. Episode 82, can you believe it? Nobody thought we'd make it to 82, so we've been broadcasting. Unfortunately, the reason why we started the show is because of the COVID pandemic. So unfortunately, we are at episode 82, but been great. We've been connecting with a lot of people throughout the country, and uh, today is not going to be any different. We've got Lakeisha Benjamin on today. She has got a brand new recording called "Pursuance" the Cold Trains, and we're going to talk all about that. She's got an all-star lineup on this recording and uh, perusing through it, man. I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air, but she's paying homage to, obviously, a couple of the greats, and we're going to talk all about that in one second. Of course, I should also mention, as I always do, the Jazz Showcase is up and running. Wayne Siegel is up and running, and as you heard yesterday, we're going to have Denise Times. She is performing this weekend, Thursday through Sunday, at the Jazz Showcase. And the Green Mill is on hiatus because of the rollback pursuant to the mayor's um, announcement that you cannot serve alcohol unless you have food. So unfortunately, they've rolled back. But credit to Fitzgerald's, they're still cranking out there because they have food. and They're able to do things out there. And they're not in the city of Chicago. I should mention that as well. And Winters is still on hiatus, but he is going to start doing some live at-home streams. And we're going to have all of that information up on ChicagoJazz.com. And, of course, all of our social, IG, Twitter, Facebook, all that good stuff. All right. I should also mention that we are getting dangerously close, as I mentioned yesterday, to announcing our full lineup for the fall that we're going to be doing at the soon-to-be opening Epiphany Center for the Arts. EpiphanyShy.com is where you want to head over so that you can get all the information. We are going to be doing a COVID-safe protocol situation with an infectious disease mitigation coordinator on staff along with a minimum amount of people to see a live performance, but then we'll also be doing a pay-per-view platform, and we are going to be announcing that very soon, most likely Friday. So stay tuned on that, and we will put all that information out in front of you. Now that I got all of the plugs and all of the pertinent information here related to Chicago, I want to bring on Lakeisha Benjamin because we've got some good stuff to talk about, and she has got the hippest background out of all 82 shows Done deal, you win. That's it. I mean, how about that? We were talking a little bit before we came on, and I'm like, no, oh, man, that looks really hip. So she she went with it. I love it. And LaKeisha, uh, congratulations on the new recording. Thanks so much for being on Chicago Music Revealed. And you're in New York. How are you doing? Everything's good out there. I assume you're probably hunkered down in your uh, in your place. You're obviously not probably playing any gigs right now, right?
1: I'm hunkered down, but New York, because honestly, because of our numbers, we have we are actually in phase four of opening. So some Mm. of the jazz clubs here have been doing the live streams without the audiences. So Blue Note's doing it. Village Vanguard's doing it. Blue Note just started uh, Smalls. Yep. So there are some activity happening. You know, some people are not doing it because they don't feel safe. We don't know what's going to happen, but there is some movement here. Well, and and. You
0: know, credit to your mayor and the governor out there for really clamping the brakes on everything to begin with, because that's the reason why everybody's so aware in New York and you guys got out of it and you're able to start doing that. And also, you know, I was taught talk- I forget who I was talking to last week, but they they're, they were in New York and they're you know, performing in New York. And Smalls is set up in a great way to do that live performance because they always have been able to do that kind of stuff. And uh, I know that a lot of these clubs in Chicago are trying to find their way around the live stream platform. But, I mean, it seems like there's a couple of clubs in New York that are already ahead of the game. So that's awesome that they're able to start doing live performances. Are you? Do you have any live performance streaming gigs coming up that, that uh, people can check you out on?
1: I actually do not. I've, I did a bunch recently, but now, you know, we're trying to navigate in my management, how the festivals are working. It seems like the D.C. Festival may be going online. So the way they're going online now seems to be a little bit different. Like people are now asking to get the band together and stream somewhere to the Mm -hmm. location. So, you know, to me, it's all one big circus and we're all just trying to figure out what's going on, you know?
0: (laughs) Well, I, you know, and that's, that's the one thing. And, and it's, it's kind of, it's like the wild West where nobody knows what's going to work, how it's going to work, what to do, but credit to everybody to keep these festivals alive. And I'm sure you would have been booked on a ton of festivals. First of all, your new recording, uh, Pursuance, the Coltranes, and it's on Ropa Dope, an incredible label, and I know they have a lot of a lot of push behind it. And so any recording that's on Ropa Dope is something definitely to check out. So I'm glad that I got a <clears throat> I got a reason to check this out. First of all, and and I was pleasantly shocked because you know when you hear about somebody doing Coltrane tunes, you know the first thing is, hmm, I wonder how this is going to work out. How is this going to be happening? Because you know you're you're doing something. With you know legendary songs, obviously from a master, a true master, but man, you put a fresh twist on all of these tunes it it I love the arrangements, there's some orchestral parts in there I hear on on a couple of different tunes and i I love the the way you've you've paid homage to the tune and changed it and and brought it and kind of made it yours in as well as paying homage to the tune so how did you de- i mean obviously john coltrane must have been a huge influence on you and your playing and everything but how did you decide to come up with the concept to do this recording and then you have like an all-star cast as well
1: um the whole thing started kind of like in steps. so a common misconception is that because i'm a sax player i, I was a you know huge john and, and mm. um one of my friends that's actually on the CD, the track with Michelle and Diggie Ocello, Georgia Ann Muldrow, actually, like, you know, one day we were sitting around the house and she was like, you know, listen to this uh, Alice Coltrane track. So I listened to it and immediately fell in love with it. And, you know, we were playing the song over and over. And as we are going through the album, you know, Joe Henderson was on it, Farrell Sanders, Rashid. You know, in a couple of years, I was about to start playing in Rashid's band. So I became really super infatuated. You know, back in those days, you kind of open the CD and look at the booklet. Right. And I saw that she had gave a... You know a shout out to John Coltrane you know for just you know being magical and my first thought was like oh my gosh he has like a brother or something let me hit google <laughs> oh, and I t- <laughs> yeah I looked it up looked him up and I was like oh man this is definitely not her brother <laughs> so as I started you know the, the way I do things is I kind of I saw how much work he had and like to me it was almost like longer than Art Blakey's repertoire or Miles Davis or something so I was like I'm just gonna go in chronological order Mm. And by the time I got to the end, after having heard pretty much every Alice Coltrane record that was out and not reissued at the time, it became like really a a strong understanding to me of like how connected they were, and it became really hard for me to separate the music because of the way I, you know, kind of came into it. So I picked the Coltranes in general because I felt like they represented like the highest level of musical excellence you could achieve, and then as far as like you know just compassionate empathetic human beings they rec- they they represent with how you want how you think of a musician in terms of healing and helping humanity they kind of have that vibe so i felt like it was like a complete picture the, the all-star situation with all the guests was not in that concept originally i just kind of wanted to pay homage to the coltranes and them i kind of felt like because i play so many different genres of music i wanted to you know check the cold the, the core changes make sure everything was straight and i was like who do i know has played with John and Alice Coltrane. And I was like, Reggie Workman.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah, I, you know, obviously, I went over, yeah. Yeah,
1: I called him <laughs> up. I went over to the new school, hung out with them. I didn't tell him what I was doing, just, you know, spoke to him. And as we were speaking, he was like, yeah, I'm really excited to, uh, you know, hear about this project you're talking about. So I mentioned it to him. He, he got excited, and he's like, you know, I'll help you out in terms of like, you know, I wanted somebody that kind of knew what John Coltrane ate for dinner. What right. Did John, how, what did John Coltrane talk like? What, what was, why? Why did he write *Naima*? So I needed like more intimate details of how they were mentally thinking. Mm-hmm. So once I got past that, you know, I kind of said, "All right, you know, I'll see you later, Reggie." And he um he mentioned to me that uh he had just won the NEA Jazz Master Award, and I was like, "Oh my God, I shouldn't leave. We should like celebrate. You know, like what <laughs> are we gonna do?" And then he's like, "Yeah, it only took me 82 years," and I was like, "Whoop!" 82 years he's like yeah you have something to look forward to I was like oh no brother (laughs) so it kind of that idea was really bothering me because he also mentioned he had just got tenure at the news new school so I'm like he's 82 he just got tenure at a school he's been at like 40 years he just got this award for people he played with when he was like 20 and I kind of was like how many people are like Reggie that are in his age group that if they did pass today, we would be on Facebook. Oh my God, lost a great one, long but not forgotten. Right, right. And while and while they're here, we're not giving it to them. So that you know, long story short, is how I spiraled into like picking my individual guests.
0: You know, I I first of all, there's so much there that you just described, but let's talk about Reggie for a second, because isn't that unbelievable? That first of all, the NEA. I knew he got the NEA award, but I mean, yeah, he's 82. When he got it, so it's kind of like, hello, where's everybody been for, like, you know, 60 years. But then also the fact that he just got tenure. He's 82. He just got tenure and he was at the school for how long did you say? 40 years he's been teaching at that school?
1: I, I want to say it's between 30 and 40. I somewhere mean, that's, in that number. that's insane. He's a legendary bass player.
0: I, it's it's astonishing to me. But, you know, to your point, I, I love the fact because your explanation of who's on here. I mean, Gary Bartz. Look at Gary Bartz is on here. I mean, you know Gary Bartz. To your point, if if he passed away, everybody would lose their minds on social. And he's influenced so many people. I mean, you know. But you're right. So I mean, you know Dee Dee Bridgewater's on the recording. Regina Carter's on the recording, just to name some of the some of the ones that were in that area that probably knew Coltrane. Both of the Coltranes probably. So, you know, it's it's interesting to me. But then the fact that you are a sax player. And you found John Coltrane through Alice Coltrane's music. I love because I haven't heard anybody come at it from that way because I've got to imagine you're coming into it that way. Your ears are you're thinking differently. I mean, you know, somebody hears John Coltrane. They're like, oh, my God, John Coltrane. And they're probably stuck. I do love Supreme forever. And then they start going backwards and maybe heard some of his stuff with miles and some of the other older stuff and things like that. But you came at, and then you went chronologically through both of them to, to really understand, is that how you learned to play as well? Because, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, musicians, you know, they might jump in and start like in the uh, electric miles era and then go backwards. But is that how you w- w- kind of learn, like saying, okay, wait a minute. And then, Also, they might stick in the electric miles era and they might never go backwards. They might just keep going forward and not even think about it, you know. So is that something that as you were starting to learn how to play, um, maybe whoever you were, you know, you studied with or something like that, they said, you know, you got to learn where everything came from so you know where it's going.
1: I mean, fortunately, like I said, most of my like, especially in the beginning, I was always opening those CD booklets and checking out the people. So it just so happened that the first recommendations to me were like Dizzy Gillespie, Big Band, Charlie Parker, oh, okay. you know, Duke Ellington. So I was already starting, pretty I don't want to say ancient, but pretty far back. Mm-hmm. So even when I looked at those recordings to find people and I'm finding like Harry Sweets, Edison, all this stuff, I still, Clark, I still have to go back to find out, well, how do we get to them? So I was kind of stuck in the the pre, you know, beginning, before big band, jazz, big band period for a long time because uh, that's what my school was playing. That's what I'm learning how to play. And it wasn't until, like, you know, I made, I think I picked up a Jazz Times magazine. Someone, like, you know, my parents were like, oh, you're into jazz, they picked this thing up for me. We're like, you know, we spent $4 on this, you better, like, read it. And I kind of (laughs) was going through the people. And when I was going through, that's when I kind of saw that they were, like, I wasn't aware that they were, you know, 20 year old 30 year old 40 year old musicians that play jazz I thought you had to be like ancient like Duke Ellington uh-huh. so when I opened the magazine I, I you know I used Van Doren Reeds I saw like you know Kenny Garrett, Joshua Redman, Greg Osby that's when I first was like oh wait a minute mm-hmm. I need to like listen and so I did for a while like you know kind of keep listening to Art Blakey all that stuff in the past but I was also still like listening to song books still listening to Regina Carter CDs so there was a moment that it meshed but I was you know I come from, like, my teachers were, like, traditionalists. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and, and you know, your your age, obviously, you're influenced by a whole host of other genres. And, you know, listening to this recording, I can hear all these different genres mixed in and kind of jumping back to what you said earlier about, and I thought it was a great point, about how both Alice and John are very, I mean, I think of them, they're very spiritual musicians. You know, I mean, that you can hear a lot of different musicians, but when you listen to Alice's music or you listen to John's music, that comes out to me. It's spiritual. You know, you can feel where they're coming from. And I I love the fact that the songs that you selected, which I want to talk about how you came up with the, the repertoire, because obviously there's a whole heck of a lot of repertoire that you could have picked. And, uh, you know, I can't even imagine being able to whittle that down. But then I love the fact that that to me, it it's perfect with what, the way you play and also all of the different genres you are influenced by and you perform because it's, it's almost like exactly what Coltrane's would have done if they were living in 2020 and 2021, where they're influenced by all these different genres, keeping the spirituality of the music and influencing the music with all the different genres. I mean, you've got a hip hop groove on this. You've got a Latin feel that I, I love the, I love the feel on, um, on, on Spiral, I really dig the feel on Spiral. It's kind of an Afro-Latin, uh, Afro-Cuban groove. But, I mean, you, you know, it, it, to me, it's exactly what the Coltrane's music is, is that, you know, the person performing it brings their spiritual spirituality into it and combines all of their influences together to push their their music out in their own way, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. I mean... I always feel like, you know, these days people try really, really hard to combine the genres. It's kind of like a hip thing in my generation. Like, you know, put some jazz, hip-hop together and kind of, you know, really just lay beats on top of melodies. But I feel like in my generation, we grew up like nobody was going outside the house and listening to Charles Mingus. If you went outside, you know, it was hip-hop central. That's what it was. If you lived in a Latin neighborhood, you know, it's merengue salsa. That's what it was. Nobody was out there listening to that. So I feel like you don't have to work extra hard to do what's already inside of you. Mm-hmm. But you do have to work hard to kind of do what is not so natural. So for me, I wasn't thinking like, oh, I'm going to make this hip hop. I'm going to make that. I knew that just by me arranging it, there would be those elements in there because of my experience. But I really wanted to make sure that I kept the music. I don't know if it makes sense as wholly as possible because it really felt like they were making their music for a greater purpose. And I didn't want to distract people by dropping 808s on the track you
0: know yeah Yeah, you you gotta find that fine line I suppose you know but I mean yeah you know (laughs) but but you know so let's talk a little bit about the song selection because I mean there's a heck of a lot of songs that you could have picked. I mean, how did you even go through the repertoire and how did you decide on the repertoire? Or maybe that's something that maybe Reggie Workman even worked with you on because I mean, talk about a sounding board to be able to talk to somebody about these tunes. I mean, to your point, he probably could tell you exactly what John Coltrane ate for breakfast before he wrote Naima. You know, I mean, he probably knew. So how did you go about the process?
1: He really could, but uh, if I'm honest, Reggie, you know, he kind of didn't really want to get involved until we got to the studio. So it really was all on me to organize all of the individuals, to call everybody. You know, I may put it out there, hey, Reggie, could you call, you know, Roscoe Mitchell for me? He'd be like, yeah, sure. Wouldn't call them. So it was really, (laughs) in terms of like, I had to get as much together before that day, those two days. We did two two 12-hour days in the studio. So my job was to kind of get everything together before that, so... In terms of selection, for Alice Coltrane, you know, it was easier for me because I I remember the songs that immediately made me fall in love with her. Mm -hmm. For John Coltrane, it's kind of like his his sound haunts you in your head. It's so hard to get away from the original version of anything he does because. So I just I just laid it out to what am I? As soon as I heard the song, I understood it. I loved that it was moved rather than I had to come back a couple years later to understand. So at Mm -hmm. that point, I had maybe. You know 60 songs between the two of them and then i just picked what are the first if we're doing six and six what are the first six that i heard so that that was the way i narrowed it down
0: ah okay all right yeah there's so much repertoire and there and 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 it's such especially i mean when you get into john's music especially to your point it's haunting and as a sax player you know, I mean, everybody that Coltrane Sound and everybody knows those Coltrane tunes. I mean, when you went in to record now, you arranged all of this too. hats off to you and you were actually a nominated and won several downbeat critic awards. So we're going to talk about that. And I'll let you talk a little bit about that because you you and I talked about the arranging one. But you also a, a best new recording and up and coming saxophonist and all of that. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But I mean, you know, you're you're coming into this. And uh, after you put the arrangements together and you go into the studio and I can only imagine the process if you did two 12 hour days and then you go into the studio. And now not only do you have to deal with like trying to organize like this all star people coming in there to perform and the band and everything else and getting everything set up. Oh, yeah. By the way, now you're going to play John Coltrane's tunes. So, you know, no, no, no pressure here. Go ahead. (laughs) How did you wrap your head around just going in did did you i always ask this of some of the different artists that do you know both sides of the equation where they come in after they put all the tunes together all the arrangements and get everything together and then they go into record did you have to just like sit down and say all right now i'm just a player and i'm coming in and i'm just going to play because i can't worry about all these incidental things i have to just play i mean how did you how did you get your brain around the fact that now it's time for you to perform on this stage, so you could get the best creativity out of yourself as possible.
1: Um, there were some positives and some negatives. The, the positives would be that my two other CDs, even though they're not in this at this scale of work, yeah. I did you know self-produce those myself, finance them myself, and get everything together. So I thought in my mind that I had it all together because I've done this two times. I wasn't aware that I like somehow raised the bar in the scale like ninety <laughs> percent. So. It was, it was good that I was naive in the process of not knowing what could go wrong. So each step of the way, I've invested some money, and it's almost like I'm being dragged along. Like when We, we recorded this CD August 21st and 22nd. Okay. So in June, I was still thinking I should do this CD. I okay. hadn't asked my guests yet. Some of the guests I didn't know. I haven't found their emails. I haven't found their numbers. I don't have their address. So in the middle of June, I start hunting them down. <laughs> oh man, you know, like, so and after I find a couple and they kind of say, yes, I, I kind of take it at each step as encouragement. So let's say the middle of July, I kind of, everybody's kind of locked in and there's some people that still may come, but, you know, I'm not sure they may flake the last minute. I don't feel like coming. I don't know this girl, Lakeisha. She's nobody. Right. That was happening. Several guests were like, oh, I can't make it. Then the next day, okay, I'll be there. Oh. So that it was, it was like a frantic situation happening. So <laughs> oh. at the time, like I said, I didn't have any management, anything. So it wasn't until I want to say July, I want to say 30th, that I started arranging the compositions.
0: Oh wow! Because
1: I was so stuck with the details, it was like I I went on like a a weekend vac you know vacationist thing to kind of write, yeah. and I ended up just sitting on the beach. I couldn't I couldn't write anything, <laughs> so when I came home, I was like I have two weeks now to arrange all the music. So it was really less than two weeks because I knew two days before I would have to rehearse the band. Mm-hmm. So I ended up you know arranging everything you know you know playing it myself through my software and listening back and then um you know rehearsing the band and i had to you know i didn't feel like writing it out i was like, i gotta teach you everything you know i'll write the strings out and stuff but i'm I'm gonna teach you guys everything yeah and then none of the guests because they're so special we, we we didn't invite them to the rehearsal so we knew that in the session they would have to learn the songs right before their take and they would have they would only get a couple of takes through because we have everybody coming back to back. If you're at 12, somebody's at one. Somebody else is at right, two. Right, We don't know who's going to come late. We don't. So when you were talking about, you know, I got to be completely focused while I'm playing. I was actually sometimes, you know, playing my solo. It'd be the piano solo. And I'd be looking at my phone. Somebody let Greg Osby and he's outside. Because I, I, I wasn't able sometimes to really distract myself because, like, there was nobody to let them in. And I'm like, you know. You don't want them to leave because they're so great. Right, so right. I was kind of stuck in the middle of trying to figure out both things. It was kind of like really, you know, just God God made a way because it was weird that in the middle of August, every musician that I got was in town, not playing a gig, and I didn't have to fly them in. They just happened to be in New York.
0: That's, that's one of the biggest things, too, and I, I always reiterate this um for all the audience you know whether it's the young musicians the season's veterans that are watching this and of course all the casual music fans and jazz fans and everybody else is that you know when you see somebody performing on the stage or you listen to this recording you have no idea what was going on behind the scenes because it it's it's like a full it's like two full-time jobs for what she just described she had to go through to get this thing together so i mean the fact that it came together and I've been there where I'm in the middle of doing something and my phone's blowing up because so-and-so can't get in or somebody can't find parking and somebody's driving around and they're getting pissed and they want to get out of here and everything else. So I, I can only imagine. But the fact yeah,
1: that- there were weird things going on for sure. Like, you know, I'm telling you, because I didn't realize the guests were so special. In the middle of the session, they just, you know, give me their fee then. They didn't wait. They waited till the day of sometimes. Oh, really? And I would see like so many zeros and be like, you know, I'm going to faint. Or they'd be like, I need red grapes. I can't have green. It has oh, to be God. red. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there were like things I wasn't prepared oh, for. I was like, yeah. what is happening? Just play your part. <laughs> Just.
0: <laughs> well, and then, of course, when they're back to back, I can only imagine one's probably leaving when the other one's getting there. And then they start BSing because they all know each other. So then that one one person might see the other person and then they say, hey, how, how you doing? And then all of a sudden, all the timing starts getting thrown off a little bit, too. Or there's probably some yeah, delays. Yeah, but that was and- a
1: beautiful thing. I, can, oh, I yeah. can say one of the, I think the biggest life experiences, if we never made it out of COVID or anything, for me, was that because there was no manager or anybody to police us, we were literally in this studio all together. Some people coming late, some people not. And, you know, I had a full camera crew there. So I had oh, five wow. cameras that I paid for to be there recording everything. So whether we were on camera or off camera, they were recording people talking about what it was like with Miles. Oh, I haven't seen you since Mingus days and this and that. And and talking like some of the people had never recorded together before. Wow. So, you know, like getting those kind of history lessons or like, you know, Ron Carter be like, can I make a suggestion about your arrangement? And I said, OK, <laughs> you know, and then be like, I, I want to do this. I want to do that. So so getting the tutelage right there and they were still respectful about that. I was the band leader. And then also like usually in jazz, when everyone gets together like that, it's someone's funeral. Right. Yeah, you're it right. Yeah, it was the first time I had been in that situation where everyone's smiling, happy. Like, even sometimes, you know, most of the time, once you've done your work, you get out. Mm -hmm. Some people stay the whole 12 hours just hanging out, ordering food, listening to the other arrangements. Like, Brian Blade was recording next door, so he came. It was just, like, the most magical situation I could ever. Like, I I didn't have time to be so stressed because I was just, like, I can't even take it all in. I said, this this is, like, amazing to even be around these people while they're here still. Like, with COVID now... How could I get that recording together if I wanted to do it? No, this you could, August?
0: <laughs> yeah, you, 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 yeah, you could never do it. And I mean, man, oh man, what, what forethought to make sure you had cam- a camera crew there recording everything. And uh, are you going to put that out, or is it out somewhere? Or Are you going to just kind of uh, decide how to use that?
1: Of some of the interviews and stuff, like little takes and stuff, are in the EPK. Mm-hmm. So if you know, that's like on my YouTube. That that they they're they're using that for the festivals and everything, but. You know, instead of the EPK just being on me talking about the CD and, you know, nice pictures, and I put all the guests in there talking about what kind of experience they were having, them showing them at the studio recording with us working, so you can get a vibe from the EPK of just what it was like seeing all these people walking around and hanging, and I mean, there's like 45 people on my CD, so (laughs) imagine, and then they had their friends, their family, so it became like... (laughs)
0: <laughs> I don't know how you even got the thing recorded at that point, man, with everybody hanging out and doing stuff. It's like you probably have to say, okay, wait a minute, somebody's got to start doing something here. Otherwise, we're going to run out of time. Let's get moving on stuff. But, you know, the fact that you were able to have that experience is unbelievable. And then the fact that you were able to get it out on Ropadope. Did you approach Ropadope ahead of time? See, I, I know Ropadope because a couple of different musicians that I know are on Ropadope they're a fabulous label man they they push and they know they have a really great digital platform to push things out on digitally which i'm really impressed with um i mean were you already on Rope-A-Dope, or did you approach Rope-A-Dope about this concept cuz this seems like the perfect record label to have this project on
1: yeah so actually you know like i said i have two other cd's before this yeah. one so the first one was on Motema. Mhm And then I left Motema and I did rise up from two thousand and eighteen that was the first one on Robadope, so okay. I approached them like I had a finished c d How are you guys feeling about it? you know, and I think it did fairly well, you know it was like a you know compared to my first and third i guess third c d was more of a filler c d mhm but um you know the second it had t- took me, taken me so long so somehow when I did that second c d maybe a couple months later, I did a cold train cold train tribute. At Lincoln Center, just a theme show, and you know the the wheel started turning them because I was so unsatisfied after the show, and everybody's like, "Oh, you played great," and I was like, "It just felt so un- incomplete. Like it's just, I don't know about what about it, it didn't feel right." So it kind of started this idea going. So I you know, like we were like, "I had to give them a second. I just said something, and I think it's gonna be pretty big. Yeah, you yeah. guys are interested in it. To everybody, I would rather um get this thing out when i mentioned it to lewis he was very very excited about it interested so we were already in 2019 then so i said you know i'm thinking about doing this thing in like two months he said if you could get it done you know let me know he mentioned some names and i said okay and sure enough in two months i was like it's done
0: wow where we at did you did you have to take a vacation (laughs) after this whole thing (laughs)
1: <laughs> you had to be exhausted man. No, because because I had to pay for all the stuff myself. Oh that's true, yeah. I actually ramped up I ramped up my touring. I became like extra crazy about it. Most things that I say, oh yeah, I'm, I I can't do it. I got to stay home. I became like sure, 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 sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let's talk a little bit about your career too because I mean, reading over your bio, you've played with a whole heck of a lot of people for somebody your age, including like Stevie wonder is one of them. I mean, you've, you've played and toured with a lot of different musicians that are not just jazz musicians. So talk a little bit, you know, I know you came up in New York, right? I mean, so was music always around you? I mean, you you talked about your parents giving you a jazz times. What year did you like, how old were you when you started playing sax?
1: I started playing sax at 11. Um, so 10 turning 11, but, um, (laughs) I grew up like in a almost like an intergenerational house. Most of the people in my family, it's like a very urban community, had their kids as young. So, like, you know, if I'm, zir- you know, one, my mom's like 15. Her mom's like 30. My grandma's like 45. You know what I mean? So, right. in my household, there were gr- great grandparents living with me because my, my great grandmother brought up Brownstone in Washington Heights. So, we mm. kind of all just lived in there because it's like, you know, you got the house, you got the security. We're all young, everyone got in there. So, you know, my general house date, you know, in the morning, you know, you're hearing that Mahalia Jackson. The gospel music is is playing like crazy. My aunt's floor, you know, Jackie Wilson's going. <laughs> you know, my mom's floor is the straight Biggie Smalls. You know, I'm I'm in my lone corner with my Mingus. I go outside, you know, it's Elvis. It's like El Bipa, La Banda Gorda. So it became like, you know, plus I'm in a lot of after schools with after school programs with music. So it, I was definitely surrounded by nothing but, you know, these cross genres and just you had to be able to play, like... My first gigs were merengue gigs. I had to be able to work the crowd. Yeah. Straight merengue, you know? Yeah. Man, what an
0: experience. I mean, so so were you playing in high school, like, gigs and things like that before you... Because you, you went to New York's new school, obviously. But but were you playing gigs before you got there?
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was actually... I was in an after-school program that started for me in middle school. Okay. And that band director, he's actually the bass handler for Ron Carter. His name is Sergio Larios. Ah, so, he was teaching in the schools and he had kind of taken a handler break. Now he's back to full-time handler, but, um, still he was at the recording session. It was kind of amazing for me anyway, but. <laughs> Talking about going playing, full
0: circle. He was at the recording session with Ron. Wow. Yeah.
1: He, he was the guy bringing the bass in. He pretended like he didn't, he didn't know that, you know, he, he didn't know I was going to be there. We tried to, you know, Ron tried to surprise him. We, I already, already texted him. Are you going to be there? <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. So I was doing gigs. I want to say after school program for us was like four days a week. Plus we were doing okay. gigs, you know, for the Dominican Consulate. We were doing gigs in the Dominican Parade. At high school, my teacher there was Bob Stewart. Mm-hmm. So at the time he was in Nicholas Payton's like band. He was in, you know, Brass Fantasy. He was uh playing in San Rivers big band. So these yeah. people were coming to our um sama Chicago. He was giving me those CDs, Arthur Blythe. So he was giving me those CDs and like, you know, Steve Coleman was rehearsing in our band room. Oh, wow. Lincoln Center was we're having open rehearsals next door. So it was like, if I didn't go see Stan Rivers big band rehearse, I may get an F for the day for listening. (laughs) So like I was like constantly, you know, having and and to me, this is like, you know, now it's music I love. But now that I'm looking back at the broader spectrum of things, it's more of the avant-garde world Mm -hmm. that he was making, making us listen to like it was nothing, you know?
0: Right. Right. Well, and and the fact that, you know, you grew up with so many different styles around you in the neighborhood, in the house, and then at the school, you're getting these incredible experiences. Did you, when you graduated high school, did you go right into college or did you, did you play like professionally a little bit before you went into college?
1: The problem was I wasn't aware that there was a thing called professional music. So I was just like, I never knew like, Oh, someone's going to give me some money at some point for this. Like, cause when I'm doing these gigs with my teacher. He never once said, Hey girl, here's $5. I just right. assumed like, this is just what you do. You play music, you go to school, you know, at some point you're going to have to make money. But when you're a kid, you're not thinking about making money. You're like, that's your problem, mom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I kind of was just fun. It wasn't until I got to college and I went to Rutgers for a semester for history. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 w- I was studying on the music program but not so much. And, I felt so isolated from, you know, being out there in Jersey. You had to study with the classical teacher. Yeah. There was no jams. Like, you know, the older kids were kind of like, you know, more collegiate. And I'm like kind of street raised. I just was like, I got to get out of here. And that's when I auditioned for the new school. And Reggie Workman was my auditioner. Oh, was he? Reggie Workman, Joe Chambers, uh, Billy Harper, and Joanne Brad King. Oh, man. (laughs) I I walked in a room and I literally was like, I'm out of here. And they all just laughed. I was like, oh, hell no. And and they all started laughing. And Reggie came out and was like, don't leave. I was like, come on, man. What is this? You got to know better. You got to have like one of y'all in here for these auditions. You're going to kill a kid. And they all just started laughing. That's how it kind of started. It's
0: like you opened the door and you walked into the jazz history closet or something, man. It was like, wait a minute. What is this? It was
1: intense, man.
0: (laughs) So you, you you uh were you at at the school for 4 years? Is that how that I mean it's it's regular school? I was school, at right? the school
1: for way longer than 4 years. Oh, In really? the process of going to the new school, like I said, that's when I discovered that there was going to have to be some way to to figure out how to make money. I wasn't aware, like I said before that that all this happened. And when I got to the new school and you get to that broke college situation, yeah. It hit me really hard like how am I going to live? Like I, I I like you know, I, I had already been I just didn't know what to do and then you know, I was kind of like my friends at the school. I was kind of like an outcast, except for Georgia and a couple other people. One day I was walking down the street. I would go to jam sessions all night. And some guy across the street, he's like, hey, yo, girl with the sax. And I'm like, ah, oh, I don't tolerate that. So I just kept walking. Right, right. So he kind of starts chasing me down. So I'm starting to run a little bit, like, what's going on? So we kind of like run. And eventually I stop, and I'm like, I'm not going to run. I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, hey, uh... I'm doing a session, and I wonder if you want to come by. It's, it's for Missy Elliott's uh, nephew. And I was like, man, you're full of it. <laughs> he's like, oh, just come by tomorrow. He gave me his number. He's like, here's the address. And I, you know, I was like, I'm not coming down there. Yeah, right. The next day, I was like, eh, ah, I'll go. And I went down there. I go in. There's a room full of dudes. And I was like, this may not go well. So I was like, all right. I just walk in. I start playing. You know, everything's going well musically. I'm like, OK, maybe this is safe. And then, you know, I end up playing with Missy's uh, cousin. We do this whole gig. Then they like, like, can you get a horn section to play with us? I say, yeah, I get the horn section. I get everything going. We do this gig. Gabrielle Union is there. Terrence Howard. Big lights. <laughs> biggest thing I've ever done. I'm like, this is my moment. We're going to make some money. We're going to eat. And at the end of the gig, the, the cousin disappears and never pays us. Oh. I can't, I can't pay my horn players. They're all mad at me. We've been doing rehearsals all week. And I talk to the drummer guy. I'm like, man, you're trash. Right. And then he, he kind of says, you know, like, you know what? Just come by next week and I'm going to hook you up with a bigger situation. So, I, you know, red flag. I'm like, I'm not going. Yeah, right. But I sure enough, I go. And the gig is ends up being a gig and it's with Missy Elliott this time. <laughs> so it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And eventually I'm like, I don't have any money. I might as well just ride this wave. Yeah, right. But once I did that gig and started playing with her, like, it's almost like people in that world started to, like, immediately recognize me. Hmm. And to me, it was so much easier. I'm so used to composing like long suites and things. And they're like, "Can you arrange some dance steps and some stabs?" Mm-hmm. So in that world, it became like I became like not a first call, but like the horn person you come to for a horn section. So after doing that for a while and getting deeper, and you know, meeting people and personalities, I started to meet these stars that are my resume that I'm playing with. Sometimes in a horn section that I you know ran, or sometimes they just wanted me. But that's literally how I kind of branched out of the world that I was in. It was a total mistake. I just happened to be walking in the village, <laughs> and you got class, chased like, by some. Class in the village underground. That's chased by some why. strange dude, and the next thing
0: you know, it finally works out. <laughs> oh my
1: god! It took a while because I I still to this day haven't paid those horn players, and one of them I think is still mad at me.
0: <laughs> Don't worry, they won't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Well, hey, LaKeisha, it's been a, a pleasure having you on. So let's send everybody over to LaKeishaBenjamin.com, and of course, she's also on all the social at Lakeisha B. Uh I would suggest you check it out, all of her social media, because I'm, um, uh, you know, and this new recording, uh, pursuant to the Coltranes. Now that you know the story and the background of the entire recording, um, you, I, I, I implore you to go check this out because this recording is is just it's a it's a wonderful breath of fresh air for somebody to do Coltrane and Alice Coltrane and John Coltrane tunes this way and pay homage to it. And then with all these superstars that are on it too. I mean, now you know the backstory of the whole thing. So I mean it, you know what what a great conversation. Thanks for being on the show today. And now that we're connected, hopefully we'll see you in Chicago at some point, either playing jazz. Or playing with, uh, you know, one of your hip-hop stars or one of your pop stars or somebody. And uh, we'll be able to talk to you in person at some point.
1: Yeah, hopefully. I gave up pop stars because it's just not my track anymore. But I did come to Chicago, I think it was not last year, but the year before for the Harris Theater. Oh, yeah, sure. I yeah. did their mix series on the for that. And we had some plans, I think. I'm not sure if we were going to Chicago Jazz, but there were some inquiries and stuff. So everything kind of got really mixed up. So we're hoping that next year everything will be okay.
0: Yeah, well, let's let's keep our fingers crossed that we can get back to actually doing festivals, because I know right now you'd probably be out on the road somewhere, probably playing festivals all summer long with everything that you have going on. And and because of COVID, everything shut down. So hopefully we'll be back to somewhat of a normal schedule for next year and we'll get to see you here in Chicago live and in person in some fashion.
1: It would be great. Chicago's one of my favorite cities for music.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we look forward to seeing you in person. And, hey, congratulations on the recording and everything you got happening. And uh, we're going to push this out on Chicago Jazz Magazine all our platforms because people need to hear it. And people need to know more about Lakeisha Benjamin. So thanks so much. Oh, thank you. All right. So let's. So I'll tell you, what a pleasure. What a great interview first off and then what a what a uh incredible recording i mean first of all look at the com- i'm getting comments coming in uh we've got a lot of great comments everybody's digging what uh what we were talking about which i love and now that you know the story behind this entire recording you've got to get out and check it out i mean it's 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 incredible and the fact that she was able to get all these people on there i mean reggie workman come on really dd Dee Dee bridgewater ron carter Wow. All right. So what a great, what a great interview, Lakeisha Benjamin. Thank you so much for being on again. And uh, hopefully we'll get to see her again. I know we'll have her back on at some point. She's got so much stuff going on. It's incredible. But all right. So episode 82, wrapping this thing up tomorrow. We've got another big show. We've got a duel, a doubleheader with Jeannie Tanner and Abigail Rickards. This is going to be good. They always do a live stream. We're going to be talking to them all about everything that they go on, they've go, they been going on. We've been good friends with them for a long time, so it should be a wild and woolly interview tomorrow here on Chicago, Jazz, Chicago Music Revealed. And, of course, if you like what you hear, please tell your family, tell your neighbors, call the grandkids tomorrow, 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. See you on the next broadcast.